Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Isaiah 53 is where we're going to be. Uh, there was this guy. His name's Philip, but I, I mean, you can call him Phil, I think, if you want to. And one day God tells him to go down to a certain street, to go down to a certain road. He tells him just the same way that I'm, I'm talking to you right now. He tells him to go down to this certain street and, and just walk along the street, and I'll, I'll tell you what to do next. As he does, he comes across another guy who's not named in the story, but uh, the guy is sitting in this chariot, this horse-drawn carriage, and he is reading an ancient Jewish scroll, an old Jewish story. Phil, this of course catches his eye, and so Phil walks up to the guy who is sitting in the chariot, who's not named, and, and kind of just jumps up in the chariot and says, hey, uh, do you know what you're reading about? Do you understand what you're reading about? And the guy responds, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? I'm, I'm not really sure. I need a, I need a teacher. Now, I, I want you to really visualize what's going on in the story. This would be like God telling you one day, you're just sitting in your living room, and God says to you, hey, I want you to get up and walk along Old Moralton Highway. You start walking down that highway, and you see a truck, just a truck off to the side of the road, and without any sort of introduction, you just walk up, open the passenger, sit in the seat there, and say, hey, what are you doing? It's not, it's going to go weird, right? You might get shot, that sort of thing, but that's what Phil does. They start to talk about the text, and, and, and the guy particularly, the one not named, says, uh, you know, what is the story about? Who is this story talking about? Phil responds to him and tells him, the story is about Jesus, a man named Jesus, the Messiah. And then he says that it goes, or the, it says that it goes through the Old Testament stories, the new stories, and he starts to explain to him who Jesus is. The man is moved by this. He comes to believe in Jesus, and he asks Phil, as they are traveling along there in the chariot, they come across a body of water, like a pond or a lake, and he says to him, what is stopping me from being baptized? Phil responds, nothing. Which means that, according to the story, which means that the man had put his faith and trust in Jesus. He heard the story about Jesus, he believes that story, and he aligns his life with Jesus. So he goes and they get out of the chariot, they walk down to the water, they baptize, Phil baptizes this unnamed man. And the Bible story says that as soon as the man came up from the water, the Holy Spirit took Phil from that water and took him off somewhere else where he could help another person. What turns out is that the man who is not named turns out to be very well connected in Ethiopia. He has a lot of friends. He has a lot of influence and prestige in the country of Ethiopia. And in fact, legend says that this man, who's not named in the story, takes back the gospel message of Jesus Christ and tells Ethiopia about Jesus. And, and the Christian message explodes there in that area and in that community. What's interesting is that the story that very old, ancient Jewish text that the unnamed man was reading is Isaiah 53. This text that we're going to look at this morning is the very same text that the unnamed man read in that story. And my hope, as I'm sure your hope is as well, that we will have a very similar result, that the gospel message will explode and people will hear about Jesus. We're going to look at Isaiah 53, just one verse. But before we do, let's pray together. 
God, thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, the joy it is to gather together. God, I pray for each person that is here in this room, those who are watching online, that you would knit our hearts together, that we would be the second family. God, we would, we would glorify you, that your word would speak clearly this morning, where we don't measure up. God, I pray that you would give us the faith and the strength and the courage to do just that. Hide me behind the cross. Hide me behind the scriptures, and may your word come across clearly. God, may we leave here today grateful and motivated to be more like the one who gave himself for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Like I said, one verse, Isaiah 53, verse 12. We're going to be looking at this one verse, and we're going to look at it backwards, okay? We're going to look at it backwards. We're not going to read it back. I'm going to read it to you forward, but then we're going to take the three parts of it and look at each of them in reverse order. Let me read the verse to you before uh, we, we take it apart and put it back together. This is what the Word of God says in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him, that's the Messiah, Jesus, the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for rebels. He bore the sin of many and interceded for rebels. The first part that we're going to look at is that last phrase there about bearing the sins of many people and interceding or going on behalf of the rebels. In one line, in one verse, it really brings into sharp focus the problem or the root cause of so many issues and challenges that we have today, which is rebellion. Every sort of struggle that we have, every conflict that we find in our world and in our relationships and in our community stems from this idea or this reality that we are bent toward rebellion. That we rebel against authorities, we rebel against the way it is, we re rebel against the, the order of things, of how God has established things. We rebel against these, and the net result is that we have conflict within our own lives. Rebellion starts in the gospel story or in the Bible story with Satan, who in his pride and jealousy refuses to submit to the order in which God had created. Adam and Eve uh, participate in this. Humanity participates in this. When Eve sees the fruit as desirable that she was told not to eat, and they both partake, and they rebel against God's order. Their children participate in this further when one of the brothers, one of their, one of their sons, kills the other son, rejects or rebels or revolts against the very image of God. The nation of Israel continually did this as they would not submit to Moses and Aaron and the God-given authority in their lives, and they constantly wanted to do their own thing, constantly pushing back on what it was that God told them to do. Rebellion in this text is tied directly to sin. Any sort of rebellion, any sort of revolt against what God has created, what he expects, the order that he has established, is sin. And that sin results in death. It's a very clear, simple line in the Bible that when you rebel against the God of creation, you are sinning. You're rejecting his order, and the consequence of that sin is death. Numbers chapter 14 the story in which the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, have been freed from Egypt and they are now standing at the precipice. They are standing at the gateway of the promised land. They have wandered through the desert, not the big wandering, just they have traveled through the desert and they are now standing at what they were, get they were getting to. 
As they stand there, they're looking across into the promised land, and they send some spies, some people to check out the land. The spies come back, and they tell the people that uh, the land's good. It's, it's a really good land. It's way better than that desert that we've been going through. There's all sorts of water. There's, there's places to raise crops and livestock. There's places to live, and food is in abundance. It is a great land that we should go and conquer, that we should go and inhabit, except for there are some bad guys in there. There's some people that uh, probably don't want us to take that land, probably don't want us to inhabit it. The people then decide at that moment, even though these people have seen God move with their own eyes, these are the same people that saw God save them from Egypt. They literally all witnessed the, the, the sea parting. They walked across it with their own feet. These same people are standing now at the promised land, and they decide in fear to go away. Joshua says in verse 9, Do not... Do not, these are Joshua's words. He says, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel against what God wants you to do. God responds to them and says, because you will not listen to what I'm telling you to, because you rebel, all of you will die in the desert. All of you are going to die in the desert. You are not allowed to come in. You need to go. You are going to die in the desert. You are not going to see. Any adult who has seen all of my works, who has seen me free you, all of you will die in the desert. You are not allowed to go in. Very clear line. Rebelling against God is a sin that results in death. Here's one of the unbelievably practical elements from that story is this. There really were bad guys across the river. There really were enemies across the river. They were armed. They had walls. They had knowledge and skill. They were probably on paper better equipped to defend the place that they are living against a group of former slaves that just wandered in from the desert. The bad guy, here, here's what I'm trying to say. The fear on the other side of the, of the river is valid. It is a real fear. They really were bad people on the other side. And yet, God still considered it rebellion for the people not to go toward what they were afraid of. The reason I say that is because sometimes we think following God is only required of us if everything is smooth, if everything is laid out, if there are no dangers or fears or, or complications or challenges to it. I'll follow God anywhere so long as I have a good insurance plan and everything's smooth and there's not the possibility of getting sick or getting lost or getting scared. I'll follow God everywhere except for if I am mildly inconvenienced. Then we'll just postpone and we'll go back at it maybe another time when the weather improves. They were literally standing at real bad guys, and God still considered it to be rebellious not to follow God into where God was leading them. These are the rebels that God, Jesus, bears their sin. William Barclay says this way, The tragedy of life and the world is not that men do not know God. It's that the tragedy is that knowing Him, they still insist on going their own way. They still insist on not following him. This is the amazing thing about rebellion, is that 
people who see God move, know God. Uh, Christians for over 2,000 years, Baptists for over 400 years, have stand and, and, and declared, have loudly say, we believe in the God of the universe and still live their lives 90% of the time in a spirit of fear. Constantly afraid of what might happen if. It's the amazing thing about rebellion. It's the amazing thing about how thousands and thousands of years we still do the exact same thing. That sort of rebellion against God ends in death. That is the result. That is what the, the, the text here says, that he bore the sin, he bore the consequence, the death of rebels. But how does he do that? In what way does he do that? So we were looking at that last phrase, look up at the next phrase, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. He bore the sin of many, interceded for rebels because or by willingly submitting to death and being counted among the rebels. There is this beautiful literary comparison and contrast that's going on in this text. In Isaiah 53, this whole section we call the suffering servant. I, I mentioned it last week in which all of these chapters are talking about the servant, but this one in particular is the suffering servant. In the suffering servant, there is this comparison and this contrast uh, going on in regards to rebellion. Over and over and over again throughout the text, you have this, this repeating of the phrase or the word rebellion or rebel. And yet Jesus is portrayed as the person who willingly submits. It says he submitted to the point of death. Jesus obeyed to save the ones who would not obey. That's what's going on in Isaiah 53. That's the picture that is supposed to be uh, uh, confronting us. That he willingly obeyed to the point of death. He took the consequences of sin on his own self so that he would save those who actually uh, sinned, who actually rebelled. But not only did he die, but that it says he was counted among those rebels. He identified with those rebels. What does that mean? What does it look like to be identified, to be counted among the rebels? We know that Jesus doesn't participate in the rebellion. So how is it that he is counted among the rebels? The first one, there's, there's three very simple ideas here. The first one is that he was born like a rebel, that Jesus was born. Here in a couple months, well, really a couple weeks, we are going to celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus. But honestly, uh, confession time right now. You're at church, so you're supposed to confess. How many of you have already started to celebrate Christmas? Let me see your hands. How many of you started and you are proud of it? All right, several people. I am one of these people who believe that there's a verse in the Bible. I haven't found it yet, but there's a verse in the Bible that says you are not allowed to start celebrating Christmas till the day after Thanksgiving. I believe that as much as I believe anything except for 2020. I think you can start celebrating Christmas in 2020 like three months ago because there is nothing we need more than... Um, it's Christmas cheer for all to hear. That's what we really need right now in this country. And, and if I was honest with you, we have, uh, we've actually put up our tree in our house. I went to do a, uh, a visit, a hospital visit yesterday at Conway Regional, and there was Christmas music playing in the lobby, and I'm not hating it. I was actually like, I've got Christmas music playing in my truck uh, right now because we need Christmas right now more than anything. We need Christmas. When Jesus was born, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are not just telling a cool story. It's not just a necessary point in the revelation of Jesus. Jesus, God, 
the birth of God, when Jesus becomes human, is much more than just a nice story to tell people. It means that the God of the universe, the creator, the almighty, took on the, the identity of the rebels. He took on our weakness, our insecurity. He took on our dependence. Have you ever seen another, like, like an animal be born? Horses drop out of there and start running. Humans aren't that way. We are completely dependent. All the other animals, they just come out and just, like build a nest or something. We're, we're over here needing everybody else to, we need these sort of things. We are completely dependent. The God of the universe is dependent on a girl in a stable. He identifies with the weakness of the rebels. He's counted among the rebels. But it's not just being born, it's also living. It's also the life that we live. And, and that often is the hardest part. I notice that all of us are living a life, and it's the hard part. I don't remember a lot about being born. I think God does that for us for a number of reasons, but I don't remember it. I do know that living is hard. And it's not just that we live, it's that we have to live rightly. We have to live well. And I am convinced of this. I would do a lot better in keeping my Christian values if it weren't for all the crazy people that I have to deal with all the time. Anybody else that way? You would live better if other people would live better. That would be a lot better on you. Jesus lived his whole life with the same crazy, broken rebels that we live. He lived a life with the same crazy, broken rebels that we live around. He identifies with rebels not only in his birth, but in the life that he lived. In fact, if you were around during that time, and let's say you and a friend are having a conversation, and you were dividing out the good people and the bad people, circles of friends. You know how you do that at work or, or in your social um, circles? You'll say, these people are really, they're, 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 they're a group. They're a section of friends. This is a section of friends. If you were to do that, you would put Jesus in the bad section. Innocently, you don't know that he's the Messiah at this time. You just put him in the bad section. I know that you would do that because that's what the Bible did. Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was a friend. He identified, he was counted among the broken, the rebels. He was born like rebels are born. He lived amongst rebels, and he died like rebels die. The Bible says that he was hung between criminals, and then verse 9 of our text says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was so willing to be counted among the rebels that he was killed like one. One of the things that we often lose because of our Jewish centric way that we read the Bible. When we read the Bible, we focus in on the Jews. They're the heroes of the story. They're the key characters of the story. So we end up focusing on the Jews. One of the things that we miss or that we don't often carry with us is the fact that the Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did. The Jews wanted it to happen, but the Romans are the actual execution uh, agency that God used, that the Jews used. And here's the deal. When you think about it, the Romans don't care about the religious squabbles within the Jewish people. 
They killed him for another reason. The Jewish people at that time wanted Jesus dead, the Jewish leaders. They wanted Jesus dead, but they couldn't get the Romans to care about what Jesus did. You remember the whole story where there's Herod and Pilate, and Pilate washes his hands and all that? They keep bringing him to Pilate because they want Pilate to kill him. They have to trump up a charge. They have to make some sort of order in which the Romans would kill Jesus. Do you know what the charge ended up being? Treason. And they used the way that they often killed rebels. Crucifixion. The Romans almost exclusively used crucifixion to kill rebels. Do you know why? Because it was a sign. It was a billboard that let everybody walk by. They left those people. They left those um, people executed by crucifixion up on the cross for a while. Why? Because everybody that walked by would know this. If you rebel, if you revolt against Rome, that's what happens to you. Jesus dies a rebel's death, hung between rebels. Jesus identifies to the point that he is born into our rebel weakness. He lives with rebels and he died a rebel's death. Jesus completely bears the consequence of sin on himself by being counted, identified with, friends with the rebels, us. This is what Jesus does. This is how he bore their sins. This is how he bears our sin. But then the question immediately comes, why did he do that? Why did the one who knew no sin become sin, take on the penalty of sin? What was he after? That's what our last section says. Therefore, I will give him, Jesus, the Messiah, the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. This verse is talking about like the victors of war. The people who win the fight get the spoil. They get the reward. And we know that Jesus is the victor. You can see it in Isaiah 52, 13. Just a few verses before um, our chapter begins, the section actually begins. It says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Look, we have that concept in American culture. The idea that somebody would lay down their life to save somebody else. We have those kind of heroes. We as Americans have heroes who died to protect. We have heroes who died in order to serve. And we lift them up. We will make um, holidays in their honor. We will make statues in their honor. We will name places after them. We lift them up. We have concepts like this in which the person who died was successful by giving their life to save others. We understand that. It's just what's weird about this text is that the victor, the winner, receives part of the spoil, the, the, the rewards that are given to those who win. We don't have that. We don't give the dead things. We don't have that sort of concept because what's going on in this text is that the victor who beat death ends up giving life. Here's the amazing thing about God's story is that the winner dies and then he comes back to life. See, in the Bible, in history, there's lots of stories in which people come back from death. But there's only one who does it on his own, 
who beats death on his own. Jesus beats death. He is a victor, and so he wins the spoils. You think about generals who take over a land, and and they start dividing out the land and the resources and the livestock and the buildings. They start dividing all that because they are the victors. Jesus wins because he comes back to life. Jesus took our penalty in his death, and he comes back to life. But what does he win? What did Jesus win? When he bore the sins of the rebels, when he identified with the sin, with the rebels, and he took the consequence of sin on himself, what does Jesus win? It says, you got to think about it this way. Who did Jesus fight? Who was Jesus at war with? Satan and evil and death. And when Jesus beats them, what does he get for that? He gets the rebels. Here's the amazing part of the story. And the part that really grips you is this. Jesus identifies with the rebels, takes the penalty of the rebels for the rebels. You are what he suffered for. You are who he fought for. You are the joy that he receives when he beats your greatest enemy. Jesus fought for the people who caused him to die. Jesus won for the people who caused him to die. The rebels are the reward. The rebels are what he saved, and we know that he's successful. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Friends, listen, you have to accept Jesus as your Savior. Jesus has paid the price. You rebelled. We rebel. Our world rebels, but Jesus paid the price. He made it so that you can be saved. He gives you life. He's already taken the penalty on himself. If you will receive him, you will receive life. That's the invitation today. That's what you get to do. That's what you can do today. Some of you were born and raised in church. You've been to church Uh, nine months before you were born. That's what people often say. You've never missed church. I know people who say every time the doors were opened, I was in church. You were raised that way. Your parents made you do that. Some of you just feel as you became adults, you were like, this is an adult thing to do. I get a mortgage. I, I buy a car. I find a church. I go to the church. I think this is just the thing that I do. And all of that's good. And it's all commendable. And I respect it. And I like it. You did a good job on that. But listen to me. Going to church and knowing the story is not the point of the story. The point of the story is that you would recognize you are a rebel and Jesus won you. He fought for you to free you. When you accept that, you become part of the story. So what do we do with this? For those of us who have accepted Jesus, who have trusted Jesus as our Savior, we are freed by God. What do we do with this? There's three things that I think. The first one is that we have and we develop this deep sense of gratitude that we become so very thankful. I love when we do family dedications. It's one of my favorite things that we do. I love to see families bring their children up and there's this look on their face. They're very confident. They're very smart. All of them. But there's a look on their face and a lot of us are thinking, you have no idea what's about to happen, right? We think that. And they do. They're not dumb. 
these people, they, they know, but at the same time they recognize it's going to be hard. There's one of these things that happened to me as being an adult, being a parent, being a dad, is how often has this, and maybe those of you who are further along in this, how often do you get to the point where you start to think back at what your parents did and think they weren't that dumb? Y'all ever done that? You think back at your parents and go, I thought they were just completely out of touch, and they really weren't. They really weren't. One of the other thoughts that has crossed my mind a couple of times, and this is something that doesn't come to you until uh, the kids start getting old enough to talk back, right? Is how much you sacrifice for them in small ways and in big ways. How often you think the thoughts, if I don't do what I want to do, if I don't buy what I want to buy, if I don't get the thing I want to get, if I don't go to the restaurant I want to go to, if I don't go to the vacation I want to go to, if I don't get the nice thing that I want, then they can get the thing that they want. Then they can eat the thing that they want to eat. They can go where they want to go. Almost all of our decisions are, if I don't, they can. And then when you think about it, when it hits you one day, that's what they were doing. That's what my parents were doing throughout my whole— it makes you deeply grateful for what they did. I'm encouraging you, church, the right now, to stop for just a second and to really think about what Jesus went through, how completely isolated, when his beard was ripped from his face and they spat in his eyes when he was hung naked between heaven and earth, when he bled, when he died, when he gave up his life for you, it ought to inspire within us this deep sense of gratitude, of thankfulness. Think of all the times that this will confront the lies that we hold within us, like the lie some of you walked in here today thinking, you won't say this out loud, but you think this, that you are not worthy, that nobody loves you, that nobody cares. That's a lie. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about you, specifically you. He loves you. On the reverse of that lie, some of you walked in here thinking that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're pretty cool, but you still need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Sometimes people believe that whatever is wrong, the solution is within themselves. And that's sometimes true, but that's not the case in the greatest questions that we have in this life. That you need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So the first thing, that first concept that needs to be confronted is that we need to be deeply thankful for what Jesus did. The second thing is to be more like him, to be motivated to be like him, willing to obey. You're probably not going to be asked to give your life for another person. Probably most people are not going to be asked to give up your life to save another life. And good, I'm thankful for that. But the reality is that we live so often afraid of what might happen. Like I think about the times where people are like, they'll say, and they mean it in a good way, I really want to share, I really want to share about Jesus at work, but that's frowned upon at work. Just think about that for a second. Think about the words that are coming out of your mouth. You won't share the story of a man who gave his life for you because someone might frown upon you. 
We are intimidated to share the gospel with other people because they might think we're weird. They might think that we've lost our minds. They might think that we're out of touch. Look, read the story again. Think about the story. He bore the sins of the rebels and be motivated to push into the darkness, to run into what God has called us to do. And then finally, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be counted among, to be associated with those who know Jesus. Now, there's a fine line here. If you're, if you're a child, if you're a teenager, you're probably in a stage where I really need to tell you this. You need to listen to your parents, to your grandparents, to your older siblings when they tell you that that person at school or that person, they're probably no good. They're, 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 they're bad news. Don't hang around that. You need to listen. That's one of their jobs. Let them do that. But at some point, we need to mature into believers. We need to mature into Christians that are willing to walk into darkness in order to influence, walk into darkness in order to be light, and in order to be salt. You got to stop being afraid of being associated with the broken. You got to stop being scared of hanging out with those who don't have it all together, that don't hide their sin as well as you hide your sin. It's okay to love the homeless. It's okay to love the broken. It's okay to love those who are in, in the middle of sin, the person who is addicted or, or, or is drunk. It's okay to love them. It's okay to, to minister to them. It's not going to make you less loved by Jesus and the reality is, they're not less loved by Jesus. Stop being afraid of being friends with sinners. That's how you are salt and you are light. Here's an Old Testament story. It's a sweet story. It's a romantic story in which this guy named Jacob goes off looking for a girl. He goes off. He's going to go find him a wife. He's about that age, wanted to marry a girl. He goes and tries to find one. He's out in the middle of a field, which is always funny to me, because that's not where I would go uh, to find a wife. But he's out in the middle of a field one day, and he sees some shepherds, and the shepherds say, what are you doing? And they kind of have a little talk. They're kind of shooting the breeze. And, and they're like, he says, can you help me get to the place that I need to get? They're like, sure, but you got to wait a little bit. We've got this huge stone here. It's covering the well. And uh, once we get enough people, we'll, we'll push that stone off of there. The sheep will drink. And then we'll go and we'll show you where you need to go. Jacob thinks this is a good idea. And so he hangs around and all of a sudden a girl comes out into the field. Her name is Rachel. And she was beautiful. So beautiful that Jacob decides to display his masculinity, right? He runs over to this stone that everybody was waiting on friends to get here and pulls the stone away all by himself. I just imagine him standing up and saying, you see what I did? You know, and she was very impressed, of course, because women are always impressed by that sort of thing. And so he you see what I did, you know? He follows her home because that's what boys do when they like girls. He just followed her home and her, her dad's standing there and says, hey, how long are you just going to stand around here? What are you doing? And he says, I got an idea. If you will let me marry her, if I can marry this girl, then I will work for you for seven years. You don't have to pay me anything. At the end of seven years, um, I just want to marry her. And for good reason. The Bible says that she, these are, this is a quote from the Bible. I'm not trying to be silly here, Andy. That she was, she was pretty and she had a good form. That's what the Bible says. So apparently uh, Jacob was all about that base. And so he was interested in her and her shapes and in her curves. And so he works for seven years. 
Seven long years he works for her. The desert nights are freezing. The desert days are hot. When goats die, I don't know what causes goats to die. He had to take care of that. When sheep are born, he had to take care of that. This nasty, disgusting, hot and cold work for seven long years he works for this girl, uh, Rachel. He works for the farmer's daughter. He does this, and then at the end of that seven years, he's tricked. He can't marry her. Uh, he's tricked, and he ends up having to work another seven years, 14 full years, just to marry that girl. 14 years. Jackie and I met and married in 11 months. We've been married for 15 years. That boy worked for our whole marriage just to marry this girl. I think about it, and I wonder if there were times at which uh, Jacob, and, and they're talking, and, and um, the story, I'm sure she, felt, she feels special. She feels loved. I'm sure he would say, I know that he would say, it was worth it. All of that, even being tricked, being lied to, working hard, it was all worth it. And I'm sure she believed it. Why? Because he did it. When you hear the lies that you are not worthy, when you are confused about the way to go forward. You have to hear Jesus say, look at all that I did for you. And it was so very worth it. I did that to bring glory to God and for your good, and it was worth it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.